Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church Podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. Oh, good morning. Hello. You're looking good this morning. Oh, what a beautiful winter's day. My name's Benj, if we haven't met before, and I have to be married to Mrs. 25,000 emails. So pray for me. She even has unread text messages. Like, I don't know how many unread text messages you have right now. But she doesn't know if she gets a new message or not, because it's just like, eight. Well, that's that's pretty low. Usually, like, it's like 60. She's like, is it 60 or 61? Did I get a new one or not? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. There's no excuse. Why do we gather? Why, why would we come here on a winter's morning, week after week, do the same thing essentially every week, sing some songs, pray some prayers, open scriptures, have a chat with a few people, then go home? Why would you do that over and over again? We are all busy people. We've all got other stuff to do. We've got the week to prepare for. We've got grocery shopping. We've got chores. We've got brunch to be had, people to hang out with, meetings to, to go to. Why would you come here? Why are you here? Why are we here? Why gather not only just on Sundays, but in people's homes over dinner parties? We have communion. We share in the, in the Lord's Supper over a meal. We share the highs and lows of life with one another. We pray for one another. Why would you do that week in, week out? Why would you gather in a triad and confess your sins and talk about your practicing with two or three other people that you're doing the journey with? Why would we do that over and over again? What's the point? What do we gather for? We talk a lot around here about following the way of Jesus, following the way of Jesus into the restoration of our neighborhoods. And we talk about following the way of Jesus, if you, if you picture it as a pathway, there are like two little kind of guide markers. One is practicing. There are practices and habits that following the way of Jesus actually works its way into your everyday life, into the way that you read scripture and pray and rhythms of Sabbath and generosity and hospitality and serving and The other guide marker is gathering, it's community. And I am convinced that you cannot be a follower of Jesus on your own. You can't be a solo Christian. We actually need one another. Christianity has always been a communal faith. And part of what we do around gatherings, we have some like some structures around that, Sundays and dinner parties and triads, but it happens all through the the week in different ways and people, you know, just do life with one another. That's the kind of main point of it. But why do we gather? And this is what this series is looking at. We're starting a new series this morning called Gathering. And it's really looking at why we gather. Why would we do life with other people? What's the point? We are busy people. We've got a lot of stuff going on. Why do I need to add another thing or another couple of things to my calendar? I want to start the series by just broaching this idea that actually we gather to create a counterculture. G.K. Chesterton says this, it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints that contradict it the most. It is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints that contradict it the most, that go in an alternate way, that live out a counterculture. They're the people that actually change the world. 
It's the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints that contradict it the most. We see all through the story of Christianity that Jesus started, we're going to look in Luke chapter 6, gathering disciples, bringing a, a weird, eclectic community of people together. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. One day, soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. So he chucks an all-nighter, and he's praying for this one specific purpose. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples, and he chose 12 of them to be apostles. Here are their names. So Jesus spends all night praying in order to create this little community. Who is he going to invite into like his inner crew? This is a really important decision for Jesus, a really pivotal decision for Jesus. And he chooses these people. Simon, whom he named Peter. Andrew, who was Peter's brother. James, John, Philip, Bartholomew. I feel like Bartholomew, we never talk about Bartholomew. Talk about the other guys, Peter, James. What about, what about Bart? Anyway, Matthew. Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. He picked two Judases, which is pretty funny because he knew that one of them was going to be gone. So let's just get a replacement one. That's not a funny joke. There are two names I just want to point out. One is Matthew, who was a tax collector. And the other was Simon, who was a zealot. Now, if, if you were alive in the first century, these two types of people would never be in the same room together. You would never get these two people. A, a zealot, a ze- zealots were like this extremist group, and part of the zealots were called daggermen, and they would go into crowds, and they would have daggers, and they would stab people. It was like warfare. It was like guerrilla warfare. They were literal extremists, political extremists, because they hated the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had come in and taken over Israel. And so what they were doing was using what little power they had to assassinate people and get rid of people that were against the case of Israel. And then you have Matthew, who was a Jew, both born, same ethnicity as the zealots, yet he was working for the Roman Empire. He was collecting taxes off his neighbors to give to the Romans. And he was extremely rich and extremely wealthy, living off the goods of the Roman Empire. And these two people, you would just never find in the same room. It's kind of like um, finding someone from Westboro Baptist, if you know Westboro Baptist in the States, they're the people that like picket funerals and they have signs like God hates fags, just horrific stuff. And then you have someone who's like, I don't know, organizing pride rallies or something and getting those two people in the same room. This is exactly sort of what's happening. These two extremes coming together. And it's very interesting that Jesus chooses these two people to be in the same room. And I imagine there would have been some heated and awkward moments in the group of the 12 disciples. But I wonder if there's something to that, that Jesus chose Simon, not despite his zealotness, but because of his zealotness. He chose Matthew, not despite his tax collectorness, but because of his tax collectorness. And he was choosing to form them into an alternate way. This little group of, commun- this little group of people 
They were all Jewish men, for sure. So it's like, it's, it's homogenous in that sense, but in their worldviews, extremely different. And yet this is the group of people that Jesus chooses to gather in to create a counterculture. We talk about gatherings here, and we very intentionally call them gatherings and not services. We used to pretend to have a swear jar if anyone said service instead of gathering. You know, make him put a dollar in the swear jar and whatever. We'd have a lot of money, I think, if we actually did that. But um, we call them gatherings because the church is not a, a service that you come and receive from. It is not like you, you come and receive some sort of service or performance. The church is the gathering of people. It's, we very intentionally called this place the clam as well, not Greenhouse Church, because we know that in, like, just subconsciously you drive past and go, oh, there's a church, or I'll meet you at the church. The church is not a building. We have a house. The church has a house like, like a family has a house. But the church is the people. And it is an eclectic gathering of people. If you've ever been to a dinner party, you sat around the table, and, and probably it's people that are just very different to you. A strange group of people gathering around a meal together that would never otherwise be in the room together. And there's something about that. Our culture is losing that ability to have disparate people come into the same space for the same goal, which is Jesus. And Jesus is gathering this little group of people, this little vibrant counterculture of people in order to change the world. This is, this is the mechanism he uses to bring change to the world. And then we move on to Acts chapter 2. And this is this same group of people uh, after Pentecost has happened, Jesus has died, he's risen again, he's ascended into heaven, the Spirit's given, and the first church was, plant, was planted. The first church was planted. Good words, Bench. I drove a lot yesterday. The first church was planted, and that's meant Jamie's the only one to laugh today. Everyone's like, mm. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that sympathy laugh. Acts chapter 2. Um, so this is the same little core group of people minus Judas Iscariot. And this begins to grow and expand, and we see this in Acts 2.42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So this is 3,000 people now at this, at this stage, possibly more. They committed themselves to apostles' teaching and to fellowship, which is an old school word for community, doing life together, and to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles, so they're the 12, the 11 um, performed many miraculous sounds and wonders. Judas got replaced. Um, Twelve of them. A deep sense of all came over all, all of them. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. So there's this little vibrant, potent counterculture forming, right? All the believers met together in one place. They were sharing everything they had, all these different people coming together. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. This is like incredibly countercultural. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So this little counterculture that Jesus created with the 12 apostles has now grown to a bigger nucleus. And they are living this alternate way in amongst the Roman Empire, all these different people from different places. They're meeting in the temple courts, like, like we 
would in church. They're hearing the apostles' teaching. And they're meeting in homes like we would in dinner parties or when we're hanging out. And both these things, church around the stage, church around the table, very important parts of the early church. And they are creating this vibrant counterculture. Now, this little group of people, 3,000 people, quite large, but little in terms of the Roman Empire, began to spread. And it began to spread in temples and homes all around. It began to spread in synagogues, in other cities, little, little temples, in homes, in other cities, all through the Roman Empire, until eventually it really turned the Roman Empire upside down. Now, it's estimated that at the end of the century, so Jesus died in 30-ish, 33 AD, by the end, 100 AD, there were 25,000 Christians. Not that many, right? So it grew from 12 to 120 at Pentecost to 3,000-ish, uh, where we're reading here in Acts chapter 2, to 25,000. So in kind of 70-ish years, not a huge amount of growth, like it was a lot of growth, but you know, in, 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 the, in the grand scheme of things, 25,000 people. But from 100 AD to 300, it went from 25,000 people to 20 million, all while being illegal. And it spread through the Roman Empire because there was this potent counterculture. There were slaves and masters in the same little churches together, women and men, Jews, Gentiles, Kids, adults, all these uh, people, these disparate ends that wouldn't normally be in the same room together, sharing a meal, sharing common things. Just like the counterculture that Jesus created, this was happening all through the Roman Empire. And it actually turned the world upside down. By about 300, 310-ish, there was a emperor, his name was Constantine, and he has some sort of conversion experience, and he legalized Christianity. And at that point... Everything sort of changed for the Christian movement. It went from being a little counterculture, sort of illegal, it was a little bit rebellious, to becoming the dominant religion. And that really changed the course of history and Christianity because now there was a kind of a melding of power and Christianity. And if you wanted power, then you would climb the ranks of Christianity because the bishops in the town, they were like sort of the mayors or the, or the you know, they oversaw the whole town and they had a lot of money. And so there's a lot of power wrapped up and it really took us on a strange path as Christians. And about the same time where Christianity became the dominant culture, it lost its potency it's counterculture that our founder, Jesus, started with. Um, there were all these people called the desert mothers and fathers, and they were sort of leaving cities because they saw this happening. It was sort of all happening over a, a period of time, and they were going into the desert, and they were forming their own communities, these little countercultures. And they formed what now becomes like the monastic movement, you know, like monasteries, all of those, you know, all, all through history, this just incredible movement of monasteries uh, offering hospitality and beauty to the world. In, in Belgium, the monasteries make like epic beer because they think it's like a gift to the world. Um, monasteries have been a huge part in keeping the scriptures. They would copy the scriptures. And a, a large reason that we still have access to these is because of these monasteries. And these people, they began to live and recapture this kind of potent counterculture that Jesus started with. They were practicing generosity and hospitality and prayer and fasting and serving. 
This is uh, the beginning of such just something so incredibly beautiful. They practiced the way of Jesus. They lived life together. They shared meals together. They lived on a common rhythm. They were gathered to create a counterculture. And all through history, we just have example after example of this happening in Christian culture. I'll just give you one more. In uh, the 1930s in Nazi Germany, there was a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might have heard of him. And um, Nazi Germany was sort of ramping up. We know what happens after that. But this, this pastor, Bonhoeffer, and Germany was a, a largely a Christian country. There were a lot of churches on board with what Hitler was doing. And there's, again, a weird meld of power and the church. And yet Bonhoeffer uh, began to ran, run, run a seminary. And he started this little seminary or took over a little seminary, and it was known for its just extremist ways. It was very, very countercultural. It was very, very intense. They lived a shared rhythm of life. It was just very over the top. All the sort of stuff that, like, the desert mothers and fathers were doing, they were getting together, and they were studying Scripture for large lengths of time. They were confessing sins to one another. They were just living in a completely countercultural way. And Bonhoeffer had friends come to him and say, mate, isn't this, like, a little bit too extreme? Aren't you just going a little bit beyond? And he took them up to this point where they could see both his seminary and a Nazi training camp. And he said, this, the seminary, must be stronger than that. This has to be stronger than that. The church has always been at its best when it is a thriving, beautiful, vibrant, potent counterculture. This must be stronger than that. Why do we gather week after week around a stage, around tables? Why read scripture every day? Why develop rhythms of prayer or Sabbath? Why turn off your phone for 24 hours a week? Why give away 10% or more of your income? Isn't that all a bit extreme? Well, maybe. But this has to be stronger than that. This has to be stronger than that. A counterculture more potent than the dominant culture. In an age of anxiety, the church is called to be a people of peace. In an age of self-gratification, we are called to serve. In an age of excess, we are called to simplicity. In an age of greed, we are called to generosity. In an age of isolation, we are called to community. In an age of pride, we are called to humility. In an age of cancel culture, we are called to forgiveness. In an age of tribalism, we are called to be a community of every tribe and every tongue. Just like the potent counterculture that Jesus created in Luke chapter 6 when he prayed all night to form a group. It is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints that contradicted the most. And make no mistake that the world that we inhabit the media that comes at us, social media, the algorithms are trying to form us in a certain way. They're trying to shape us for their end. People are spending billions of dollars to get your attention, your eyeballs, to get your money, to get your consumption. This must be stronger than that. Mount St. Helens, 
there was a volcanic eruption, wiped out all the ecosystem around it. But the um, plants and wildlife came back much quicker than people expected. And they found that there were little enclaves of under little rocks and little spaces of protection where the lava and the ash didn't get to that were still carrying life. And the biological term for these is refugia, little like little enclaves of life that protected what was. And from those little enclaves, once the volcanic eruption was done, they began to spread out and re-life the place. And that is what the church is meant to be. We are people of the kingdom. Right in the, right in the beginning of the story of the Bible is a Garden of Eden that was always meant to spread out. It was always meant to cultivate out. There was this call upon human after human after human to be fruitful and to multiply. Take what's in the garden and spread it out. Bring order out of chaos. And that is exactly what we are called to be. Little pockets, little enclaves of refugia of the kingdom of God, of Eden and to spread it out, to progress forward the way of Jesus. We are to conserve the ancient way, to spread Eden. Not with swords, not with power, not with political agenda, but like Jesus taught us, like a seed, like yeast in bread, it grows and it spreads just by creating a counterculture. And as a pastor, my role is not to change the culture out there. Our role as Christians is not to change. the. Of course, we want to inhabit it. We want to be in every sphere of life. But our, our role isn't to get back some sort of political power. Our role is to live a compelling alternate way. To be a refugia. To live in community, to practice the way. So why do we gather? To create a vibrant counterculture, a refugia. We gather because this must be stronger than that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come. Jesus, I thank you that you have started something incredible. And we know that the church, this tradition that we inherit, comes with all sorts of bruises, cuts and pains, things that the church has done that are not aligned with you. But we know that all through history there are little scatters, smatterings of this refugia, of your kingdom come. We ask that, Spirit, you would come and you would turn this little place, this greenhouse, into exactly that, a little hot house, a little space of growth and vibrancy. Not so that this place would be awesome, but so that we would go out and repopulate, that we would bring life, that we would see pockets of your kingdom expand and come in our own hearts, in our own souls, love and joy and peace, but in our homes, in our streets, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in the things that we put our hands to. But we know that we can't do that on our own. We need you, Holy Spirit, but we need one another. So I, I pray that this would be stronger than that.
There is a lot of brokenness in our worlds. And we need you. We need your healing touch. Jesus, wherever you went, you healed and you restored and you made whole. And so we ask for that restoration in our hearts. And God, we know that just like the apostles that you gathered, there are people in this room that hold just vastly different views over all sorts of different things. But we remind ourselves again that we don't gather around that stuff. We gather around you. We gather because we want to be followers of you. We want to follow the ancient way to life and joy and peace. We ask that your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. More of you. Our land needs you. Our neighborhoods need you. Our friends need you. Our families need you. Our country needs you. Our world needs you. May we be a people devoted to your presence. Jesus, thank you so much that you invite us all into that. Regardless of where we find ourselves, where we've been, there is an open invitation. Jesus, we just ask for more of you. Would you help us and shape us for the good of the world? Thank you.